Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When in the RAFI was based at Scampton, this was the base where the Dam Busters raid was launched from in a bomber command airfield during the war. I was on guard duty one night and had a phone call around 2 a.m. about noises coming from one of the hangars. Sent a guard to investigate. He radios back and says he can hear voices mumbling and what sounds like machinery operating and tools clanging, etc. I got out the keys to the hangar and on driving up, sure enough, there were such noises going on and the occasional flickering light. We called in the RAF police dogs, but the land shark refused to go in. This highly trained attack dog laid down, whimpered, and refused to listen to its handler. 
I went in with the guard and the RAF policeman and can only describe the feeling on entering the hangar floor as being surrounded in a cold fog that you couldn't see and a real feeling of dread. There was a real feeling of unhappiness in the place. I have never felt like that since, nor do I ever want to. We hightailed it out as it was secure and there was clearly no one there. Found out about a year or so later, when speaking to some visiting Bomber Command veterans, that it was a hangar used in the war for battle repairs. On the damaged aircraft, and sometimes where aircraft which had crew members killed in them, and sometimes it took some time to either extract their bodies or gather up the bits, would be taken to be cleaned. I have been back to Scampton since, but I give that hangar a very wide berth. My father had always been drawn to the great outdoors. Growing up, he would often accompany my grandfather on their expeditions, exploring various places with a sense of curiosity that seemed to run in the family. It was no surprise that my father eventually became a park ranger, immersing himself in the beauty of nature and creating countless memories for our family. There was a particular holiday season when the National Park welcomed an influx of tourists seeking adventure. Some were simply looking for a fun experience, while others were engaged in field research. Among them was a team of five researchers, a group that stood out with their intelligence and sanity, surpassing even the most educated of visitors. Late one night, my father received a distress signal on his walkie, talkie from one of his fellow researchers. Equipped with his trusty rifle, he embarked on a mission to investigate. As the terrain became impassable for his jeep, they continued on foot, deciding to split up and search in two different directions to cover more ground. To ensure their safety and avoid getting lost, they tied ribbons along their respective paths, yellow for my father and blue for one of his partners. As my father ventured deeper into the woods, he found no trace of the rest of the group. Attempting to contact his partner through the walkie, Talkie proved futile. There was no response. Undeterred, he pressed on, tying ribbons along the way. However, he began to notice something peculiar. He kept encountering yellow ribbons tied to trees, suggesting that he might have taken a different route than he intended. After a brief rest under a tree, he examined one of the ribbons more closely and realized it wasn't the same ribbon he had tied earlier. These ribbons appeared weathered and worn, and unlike his single knot, these were double-knotted. This raised a sense of unease within him. The area they were in was restricted, reserved for important personnel only. Who could have journeyed this far and tied these yellow ribbons? Determined to unravel the mystery, my father decided to follow these unfamiliar markers, hoping they would lead him to the correct ones. As he retraced his steps, he heard faint sounds and noticed flickering lights emanating from a certain direction. Curiosity got the better of him, and he cautiously approached the source of the commotion. To his horror, he stumbled upon a group of researchers wearing bizarre attire, engaged in a macabre dance around a central fire. Four individuals were present, but one was conspicuously missing. Hidden behind a tree, my father observed as two members of the group emerged from the woods, carrying a large wooden branch with a man bound to it. 
The man's hands and legs were tightly secured, and it was evident that he had met a grim fate. He had been prepared for some horrific ritual cooked alive. Shaken by what he had witnessed, my father attempted to contact his partner for assistance, yet no response came. Realizing the danger he was in, he decided to make his escape. As he turned to flee, he sensed a lingering presence, something lurking in the shadows. These cannibalistic murderers were still pursuing him. In a desperate attempt to divert their attention, my father climbed up a tree, silently praying that they would leave. From his vantage point, he observed their ghastly appearance, emaciated, white-skinned creatures resembling humans, but with grotesque features. Their hollowed-out eyes and elongated fangs sent chills down his spine. Finally, they dispersed, unaware of his hidden perch, carefully descending the tree. My father cautiously scanned his surroundings, ensuring the creatures were gone. Exhausted and drained, he began to lose consciousness. It was then that he realized he had been poisoned, some unknown substance seeping into his skin. Collapsing onto the forest floor, his next recollection was waking up in a hospital bed. When my father recounted the harrowing incident to senior officials, they dismissed his claims and denied any clearance he had held. It wasn't long after that he was stripped of his position as a park ranger, stripped of everything he had worked for in his career. Subsequently, he received multiple death threats, a grim reminder of the sensitive information he possessed and the things he had seen that fateful day, an ominous secret that could never be allowed to reach the public. I grew up on an Indian reservation here in Oklahoma. I am Cherokee Indian. Our home was by a massive cave system and in the middle of two hills. There's a cave on the property that everyone on the reservation knows Sasquatch exists. It is common knowledge where we come from. We would know their moods just by the sounds he made. When he was upset, you would know it because his anger would be heard throughout the whole reservation. People talked about it in casual conversation. For instance, did you hear Sasquatch upset last night, etc.? My grandparents told me not to fear him because they had a pact with him and he would not harm us. All was good until more Sasquatch came. These were evil ones, not the same as the Sasquatch that had always been there. He had been run off from the territory, we believe. I had to walk down a long dirt road to get to my school bus. They would chase me up in the woods, whooping and throwing rocks at me. I was terrified and I got a feeling they wanted to hurt me. It kept getting worse. I refused to even walk to school after that. At night, when my cousins would come over, we would all play outside in the front yard. These new Sasquatch would gather around in the hills with their glowing red eyes and watch us. I know if our parents would have not been out there, they would have taken us and harmed us. I could feel it. I could sense their body and their bad intentions. I told my family that they were bad. My uncle did not listen. He went for a walk alone to the water, which was like a mile and a half from his house. He was drowned in knee, deep water, and was an avid swimmer. No wounds, just a mysterious death. But I knew they killed him. He was the first of many unknown mysterious deaths that started to occur by the water. In that area, the person was always alone. 
It was always a mystery. I'm glad I stuck with my gut feelings because they were getting more aggressive every day that I walked to school. I believe my instinct saved my life. To this day, they're still killing people in the area. The person is always alone and the death is always a mystery. But I know and so do the other people on the reservation. Always follow your instincts. I'll send you more stories at a later date. Thank you for reading. I was at a summer camp that separated boys from the girls. We would normally sleep in separate cabins. However, this being a nice night, our counselors decided it would be nice to camp outside. Being overly testatroned high schoolers given new freedom of the outdoors, we decided to separate from our supervision and beeline for the girls' campsite. Upon successfully reaching their site and being dumbfounded at what to do, we decided that throwing miscellaneous items into the fire, creating subsequent explosions, would be a good icebreaker. Unfortunately, due to our brilliance, we were quickly brought back to our camp and separated from the girls. Not being discouraged, we decided to regroup and try again. As we began to leave for their sight again, we heard an extremely loud bang, as if from a high-caliber rifle. The sound was followed by another bang, followed by silence. We all became paralyzed, unsure what to do. Was it from the girls' sight? We were too afraid to find out. We could see a flashlight in the distance mulling around the area. I only remember lying quietly, barely able to sleep, joking with fellow campers who would get shot first if that bang was indeed from a gun. The next morning we woke up, alive and very confused at what had happened. I actually only found out what had happened when I got home from camp. A man had shot his axe at a house right by the campsite we were staying that night. What stood out to me the most, other than aforementioned, was an interview with a neighbor who didn't call the police right away because she figured the sound was from some stupid kids blowing up things at a campsite. I led a small expedition of 12 Marines tasked with recovering a downed aircraft rumored to have encountered a massive unknown sea creature. It was a mission shrouded in mystery, and our team was a mix of experienced soldiers and unique individuals. One such individual was Jack, a fellow Marine who in his free time embraced his love for gambling and dabbled in the world of acting. We descended into the depths, our hearts pounding with anticipation. The murky waters swallowed us whole, enveloping us in a realm where light struggled to penetrate. We maneuvered cautiously, scanning the underwater landscape until our eyes widened in disbelief. There it was, a sunken aircraft resting on the ocean floor. As we swam closer to investigate, the sense of danger grew palpable. Suddenly, without warning, a colossal aquatic predator materialized before us. Its sheer size defied all logic, dwarfing even the wreckage of the downed aircraft. The beast's enormous jaws gaped wide, revealing rows of razor-sharp teeth that gleamed menacingly in the dim light. Panic and chaos ensued as the creature lunged towards us, its fury unleashed. The water churned with violence as we fought desperately to survive. 
Harpoons were thrown with precision, aiming for vulnerable spots, while gunfire echoed through the depths. Jack, with his quick thinking, managed to shoot the creature directly in its eyes, momentarily stunning it. Exploiting the creature's temporary vulnerability, we launched our final assault. Grenades were hurled with deadly accuracy, finding their mark in the creature's gaping maw. The water erupted in a cataclysmic explosion as the beast thrashed in its death throes. It was a battle of survival, a fight against an ancient leviathan that threatened to unleash chaos upon the world. But victory came at a devastating cost. Ten of my comrades, brave marines who had faced the unimaginable with unwavering resolve, met their untimely end in the jaws of the creature. Only Jack and I emerged from the depths, battered but alive, as we floated in the water. A mixture of relief and sorrow washed over us. The beast that had haunted us had been vanquished, but the sacrifice of our fallen comrades would forever weigh heavy on our hearts. We resurfaced, the sun welcoming us back into its warm embrace. The ocean, once a serene backdrop, now held the memories of a battle fought and lives lost. With a mission complete, we returned to our base, determined to honor the fallen. A few years ago, I was traveling in northern India with my girlfriend at the time. Being young and stupid, we decided to hike up a nearby mountain without really doing any research on the area or how long it would take. It was an amazing hike. We met locals along the way who gave us chai tea, climbed up through thick, misty cloud forest, and were even joined by a friendly stray dog who traveled with us until we reached the top, which was like a kind of grassy plateau. There were a few other tourists spaced out in tents, some other cute stray dogs, classic India, and a local guy who was serving food. Now, thank F for this local guy because we didn't have a tent and it was dark. We foolishly thought we could hike back in the same day. Anyway, we borrowed this guy's spare tent. It was a one-person tent, so super tight for two, and make Camp 30 away from everyone to have privacy. We were asleep for maybe an hour, then suddenly awoke to this really low, deep growl right at my face. It was a stray dog outside the tent, then more growls at our feet. We were surrounded by these strays that only hours before we were playing with happily. Every single noise or slight movement we made in this tiny tent would be met with deafening barking, more growling, and you could see faint shadows through the fabric. Some of the dogs were even leaning against the tent, testing it. I punched a few through the fabric to scare them, but nothing worked. We ended up not saying a word. My girlfriend was crying silently, holding our breath for fear of provoking them and staying perfectly still the whole night. It was terrifying. We knew we would be killed by them. When the sun came up, we couldn't hear anything. After listening for ages, I manned up and took a peek outside the tent. No dogs to be seen. I crawled out on my hands and knees, and suddenly, a dog came running up to my face and started licking me. It was friendly as it was yesterday. I walked up to the local guy who gave us the tent to tell him what a mess night we had, and these dogs are crazy. 
He goes, and I'll never forget his face. Oh, they were protecting you. There are snow leopards and sloth bears up here that have been known to kill locals every now and then. I went back to the tent, and sure enough, there amongst the dog paw prints were what looked like something much bigger. By far the most scared I've ever been in my life. When I was around 14 or 15, I went with my cousin and brother to go check out some land my cousin's friend's family bought to fish on. The land was a good few acres and located right next to their very large suburban neighborhood in Georgia. All you had to do was pull onto a curb in the neighborhood and take a small dirt path across a lake, and after a small turn, the path ran about a mile in a straight line down the middle of the property to a larger lake. When we went, we took a golf cart since nobody wanted to walk and pulled onto the property. After taking the small left turn onto the main path, we all just froze. Walking towards us at the opposite end of the path, there was a man with a jacket and ski mask on. We all saw him. He wasn't holding anything. He wasn't running, and he wasn't speaking. We stopped the golf cart, but we couldn't turn around on the path since it was so thin, and there was foliage to both sides of us. The person was still at least half a mile down the path, just walking, but we were all still terrified. Also, it didn't help that the oldest in our group was 16, and the driver was 12. Despite being young, however, my cousin put the golf cart into reverse, which makes the loudest high-pitch whine ever, and reversed the entire quarter-mile pedal to the metal, which is still pathetically slow in an electric golf cart. When we told his parents, all of the adults came out with us and looked all over, as well as set up two plot watchers they had to see if they spotted anything. There was nothing on the cameras, and they have still never seen anyone in those woods since then, despite hunting there all the time. I grew up in the late 90s, early 2000s. I spent a lot of time outside, and I loved all animals, including bugs, frogs, and lizards, etc. My little brother played a lot of sports, so on weekends I was always dragged to his games, and after school I often had to attend his practices. It was soccer season, and I had to go with my mom to one of my brother's soccer practices after school on this day. I was probably half eight or nine at the time. It was at a local park surrounded by some wilderness and some hiking trails. I liked this park because off to the side of the soccer fields was a creek with frogs and stuff. I'd love to go over there and look at them and try to catch them, etc. It was evening time and the sun was setting, but there was still plenty of light left. I told my mom I was gonna go down to the creek to catch frogs. It was down the hill slightly from the fields and obscured by some bushes and shrubs. But there was a clear dirt trail that ran alongside the creek. So I scurried on down there and was carefully studying the creek looking for frogs. When suddenly a man's voice startles me. What you looking for? I look up and see a middle-aged man dressed in typical office, business wear, button-up shirt, slacks, dress shoes. He was standing on the trail, blocking my route back up to the soccer fields, looking at me and smiling. I was a shy and cautious child. 
So I just looked at the man and didn't reply at first. My spidey senses were already tingling, and I remember feeling nervous and uneasy. I sometimes saw hikers on the trail by the creek, but his outfit and appearance told me this wasn't a hiker. He then asked me, are you looking for butterflies? I saw some down there as he points further down the trail, away from the soccer fields. I just said no and started looking around at what my options were. I felt the need to get out of there fast. But as I mentioned, he was standing on the trail, which was my route back to the fields. There were thick bushes on the hillside between the trail and where the fields were. I started making my way up the rocks to the side of the creek towards the trail, further down from where he stood. And to my alarm, he started moving down the trail toward me. Need some help, he said. I was now starting to panic, although nothing had happened and he seemed friendly. It just felt wrong to me. I just got stranger danger vibes. I remember feeling a burst of adrenaline and fear. I shouted no and booked it up the rocks across the trail and crashed my way through the bushes towards the soccer fields. I remember the branches scratching me, but I didn't care. I literally scrambled my way through them till I came up to the fields and then sprinted over to where my mom was watching my brother's practice. I probably looked like hell, so she, of course, asked what the heck happened, and I told her. I felt like she thought I was just being paranoid, though. I'll never know if this guy posed a real threat or not. He could have been just getting some fresh air on his way home from work. Who knows? I just know it felt creepy at the time. Five years ago, I found myself deep within the salmon, Huckleberry Wilderness, 18 air miles east of Estacada, Oregon. It was a place of raw beauty. It was a moonlit night. My hiking companions and I had set up camp near a pristine lake, eager to spend the night under the starry sky. The atmosphere was filled with laughter and excitement as we exchanged stories around the crackling campfire. However, as the night grew darker, an eerie silence fell upon the forest. Suddenly, piercing screams tore through the stillness, jolting us from our conversation. The chilling sound seemed to originate from the heart of the wilderness, carrying an otherworldly quality that sent shivers down our spines. Fear gripped us as we scrambled to pack our belongings. Panic spread like wildfire, and one man, overcome by terror, lost control and wet his pants. We were desperate to escape the clutches of whatever creature or force was responsible for those blood-curdling screams. With trembling legs, we began our hasty retreat, stumbling through the underbrush and over fallen logs. Adrenaline coursed through my veins, pushing me forward despite the exhaustion that weighed heavy on my limbs. The air hung heavy with tension and the pungent scent of fear. As we made our way through the darkness, the swarm of bats suddenly erupted from the forest canopy. Chaos ensued, and one of the creatures became entangled in the hair of the man closest to me. His panicked cries mingled with the flapping wings of the bat, creating a cacophony of terror. It was a moment of sheer terror, amplifying the already unsettling atmosphere surrounding us. Seeking safety and solace, we pressed on, desperately hoping to leave the haunted echoes of the banshee's screams behind. Our path led us through an area enveloped in a putrid odor, a stench that defied description. 
It was as if the very essence of fear and decay had taken physical form, assaulting our senses and leaving us gasping for fresh air. Eventually, we emerged from the depths of that haunted night, stumbling into the dim light of dawn. Exhausted and shaken, we collapsed onto the forest floor, grateful to have escaped whatever malevolent presence had haunted our wilderness retreat. My grandfather told me the story about the eerie incident that made him quit being a ranger. My grandfather used to work to be a park ranger in Uganda and had many stories to tell us about misbehaving teenagers who thought it was funny to stay illegally in the park overnight, white supremacist tourists who think they could hunt anytime, and even indigenous people who believed the land belonged to them. But this time he told me the story why he resigned from being a ranger as he thought I was old enough to hear this creepy story. And after hearing it, I'm thankful for him quitting, or else I probably wouldn't be here today. One day, he and his co-worker, let's call him Sam, went out to patrol at night. As they were walking, they saw a very high, unusual amount of snake activity everywhere. Ignoring it, they continued on their job. And they had heard multiple trumpets of elephants and saw many zebras running in no particular direction just away from the place that he and his co-worker were going deeper into the depths of the forest. They assumed that it was somebody, possibly teenagers, causing trouble. This made them cautious and alert for danger. They continued going deeper in with their rifles loaded and lamps in front of them. Then they saw a blue shimmery light glowing in the shape of a circle in the forest. It looked to be like a portal. My grandfather had advised his co-worker to examine it, as Sam leaned in to touch it, he was immediately sucked in like a vacuum. Now, I'm not relating Derek to trash, but who touches a portal? After waiting a few moments for Derek to come out, but as expected, he didn't. My grandfather ran away from the portal and towards the cabin of rangers. There, he shared this unnatural incident with the rest of the rangers who slept there. They collectively decided to go check it out the next morning. The next morning, they went to the same place. When my grandfather saw the portal, there was no portal and no sign of Derek either. His co-workers then did not believe him and said that Derek must have slipped drugs and hallucinated the whole thing. My grandfather resigned after that. He did not want to see more supernatural incidents happening and also did not want to die. And there was a huge cover-up that happened with Derek and him disappearing. Is he still alive in some alternate universe? Did he turn into something like a ghost? Is he dead? Nobody knows? This evening I'm going to be telling you about a sighting that I had back in July while working the night shift. It was just me and my partner that night. We were going around the highway right around 11 p.m. But as it turns out, our second call came in the day right around 10.40 p.m. In Ohio State Highway Patrol jurisdiction, there are no set speed limits on any roads except the Turnpike and a few other select highways. So when we get calls to investigate speeders, we have to find probable causes that somebody is going above the posted speed limit. 
Now it was about 10.45, and I see a car passing from behind at seemingly high speeds. I didn't think much of it at first, but when I noticed the brake lights turning on and off, at first I thought somebody was just messing around. But then it became apparent this guy was trying to warn me. I turned on my lights and siren and immediately got behind this person. We were driving into a heavily forested area, so there were no lights. And it wasn't until I turned my spotlight on that I was able to see what he was trying to warn me about. There was a humanoid figure standing in the middle of the road. It appeared to be wearing all white, like robes. And it did not move at all, just standing still in the road. The reason I knew this person had to have seen this thing is that he too pulled over right into the closest shoulder. As soon as he approached this thing, I get out of my car and shine my light onto this person, and it immediately sprints off into the trees like some sort of wild animal, yet completely unhuman. Despite how quickly it moved, it made no noise running or running through the brush. My partner comes up behind me asking if I saw what he saw, and I responded with, Yeah, I did, in a very uneasy tone. Despite being unable to explain what it was that I just saw, all I can think about was getting back in our car and driving away. The other officer asked me if I wanted him to go in after it so we could at least figure out what kind of animal it might have been. But the fact that this thing wasn't making any noise while running, kind of, gave me the feeling that whatever was running through those woods knew exactly where it was going, which led me to believe that chasing after it would likely be trying to catch a ghost. We didn't see anything else throughout our shift besides some drunk drivers and people purposely not wearing their seatbelts. All in all, another uneventful night besides this. Me and a buddy were doing some backcountry hiking in the Great Basin in an area where all sorts of weird shit was prone to happening. There was some restricted military base in the general area, lots of military testing and maneuvers, and lots of crazy-ass weirdos that came through that area. We crested a tall hill and were looking out over a valley when we saw two other guys on a hill across from us. I took a look at them through my binocs, and they looked pretty normal. One had a rifle, but that didn't concern me because lots of people would skeet shoot and such up in that region. I decided to give them a holler and wave just to let them know we were in the area just in case they were shooting. Well, they noticed us, and the guy with the rifle raised it and pointed it in our direction. I tried to dismiss it as him using his scope to be able to see us as we were pretty far away. We resume hiking, and next thing I know, I hear shots landing on the hill we're on. Not terribly close, but, uh, we hoof it down that hill and up another one, and I break out the binocs again. Well, those two guys had now made it across to the hill we were on before, and were skulking around the brush. If that, I decided we needed to get back to camp but that we couldn't make a beeline because it would take us across the valley and we would be spot. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. In a second, I saw that there was an old dry washout that was the perfect depth to conceal us. We snuck our way down into it, and it was literally like being in a trench surrounded by sheer dirt walls. We followed it around and up to safety, but it was pretty harrowing being in there because you couldn't see too much above, and so we had no clue where those guys were. My buddy told me a story over ice fishing this past weekend. So my boss has tons of private property in northern Michigan, and he offered to let me hunt there this year. So I took him up on the offer quickly, as I've put up with central Michigan public land for years. Anyways, come September, I got out there and put three hang-on tree stands with screwing steps. Yeah, yeah, I know. Not legal, but that's the only thing I'm comfortable climbing, and I take them out after I leave. In various locations. Keep in mind, this is private. Nobody else is supposed to be hunting within miles of me. Fast forward to late October, and I manage to get out there after a very busy work schedule. Roofing sucks go to school kids for a weekend. So Friday, I take my bait out to one of my stands, the closest one to the cabin. I get there and notice there isn't much deer sign, so I decide to lug my bag out three miles down until the swamp where I find my next stand with heavy sign, so I spread my pile out. I put my steps in so I can climb it in the morning and begin to head back. The third stand, the furthest one out, was only a mile away from the one I was at situated on the side of a fairly large hill. I get within a quarter mile of it on my GPS when suddenly I begin to pick up on a bad feeling, like my body was telling me something was up. Normally I know better than I go against this, but this is as remote as you can get from Michigan, so I carried on. The closer I got, the worse the feeling got. I got within 50 yards when I just froze. Something was wrong. The tree my stand was in was empty. There was no stand. But just to my right in front, about 30 feet from the tree, was my stand, mangled and broken. I ran over to it and started investigating. 
In front of the stand, five feet away on the ground, was a massive and fresh impact mark on the ground where it had hit, then bounced against a tree. Hard enough to leave a mark, again fresh, on the tree and cleanly snap the seat off. I then turned to me tree. I looked for marks and found none. Just the old marks from where I screwed my steps in a month and a half ago when I set it up. No footprints, nothing around the tree. Someone, or something, unstrapped my stand and threw it from 25 feet up the tree and traveled through the air, the same distance to the ground. This stand was not light either, easily 60 pounds. I knew I needed to get out of there quick, so I booked it straight to the cabin. Stupid me went out to hunt the next morning in the stand with bait. I hunted from sunup to sundown, not seeing a damn thing. So, around dark, I started to pack up. Where I was facing, I could see the hill where I had the other stand. And just as I was about to get down, I could see a light. Then two. Then four or five lights. They were moving erratically around the general area of the stand. It was so silent I could barely hear some faint voices. I noped out of there silently and in the dark. The next day, I was done. I had decided to pick up my remaining stands and leave. I went to the stand I hunted in the next day, when I seen the stand hanging in the tree next to the one I was in off a branch. I didn't investigate. I turned around and ran back to the truck. I was done. Nope, that was that. Called my boss and told him what was up. His theory was meth heads or marijuana growers. As for me, I have no clue. It was the time leading up to Easter, and our family was residing on a sprawling ranch near Malala, Oregon. Life on the ranch revolved around tending to our cattle, chickens, turkeys, and pigs. One particular evening as we made our way home, the headlights illuminated an astonishing sight. In the glow, we caught a glimpse of a rare albino Bigfoot, crouched behind some bushes, attempting to conceal itself. But it was too late. We had already laid eyes on the extraordinary creature. Standing at an impressive seven feet tall, it sported long flowing hair that cascaded down its body, reaching an astonishing length of eight to nine inches. The hair, a light cream color, was a striking contrast against the darkness of the night. In that moment, my mom jokingly remarked, Looks like the Easter Bunny's back again. It seemed that this was becoming somewhat of an annual tradition the third consecutive year that we had encountered the white Bigfoot, always around the Easter season. It would linger in the vicinity for several consecutive nights, evidenced by the howling of our dogs. Our ranch was located near the town of Colton, which had been mentioned earlier, making it a close neighbor to these mysterious encounters. Each sighting left us in awe and wonder with the enigmatic presence of the white Bigfoot becoming a part of our Easter festivities, adding an element of excitement and intrigue to the season. Back to Creepy. This was out by a campground of several natural springs. A friend and I, same buddy from before, decided to strike out and go explore some very dilapidated and ancient looking farm structures we'd seen earlier in the day. We decided to go at night because of being sane, right? 
It was a small cluster of buildings far off next to some woods. We hiked through the brush to get there, but there was also a really torn up, weed, choked dirt road that led to it. The buildings were completely decrepit and looked like they were going to collapse if we breathed too hard. We went to the biggest barn-like building and immediately began to smell death. As we got to the interior, we noticed some really unnerving things. First, despite the fact that these buildings no longer had any functional purpose, it was clear that people still went out there. There were fresh footprints that did not belong to us. Second, there seemed to be blood spattered all over the place. Third, there were pieces of wood that had been sharpened into crude short stakes that were absolutely drenched in blood. Fourth, there were scattered clumps of what looked, to me at least, to be human hair. Lastly, it looked like someone had used the blood-stained stakes to try and scrawl something on a couple walls and on a load-bearing post in the center of the building. I couldn't make it out, probably better that way. So yeah, we decided to DTFO immediately. We decided to leave via a slightly different route because we were ultra-paranoid that someone was watching and would follow us back to camp. As we made our way back, we hit a truly putrid wall of that death stench again. We found the source. It was the rear half of a calf. Just the rear half. The front half was absolutely nowhere in sight. The worst thing about it, though, is that this animal was cut clean in half. It did not look like an animal attack at all. No other wounds, just perfectly snipped in half. We made it back to camp and left the next morning. I was 16, 17, around 2009, with a group of friends, eight of us maybe, walking down my block in Forest Park, Illinois, heading towards one of my friend's house. It was summer, around 9 p.m., the sun was already set. Once we made it to the end of my block at an intersection, perched atop of 20 feet streetlight was a figure. Humanoid, definitely, but with wings standing relatively still. I and all of my friends saw it. Started out it for maybe a few seconds. All muttering. WTF. After those seconds of collective confusion, the thing spread its wings fully. I don't think either of us saw it fly off or anything because the moment it did that, we all took off running. Half of us one way and the other half another, guessing neither of us has ever run that fast in our lives. I eventually made it to the friend's house we were originally intending to get to. Obviously, we were freaked out, asking each other, WTF did we just see? Honestly, really not talking about it too much after the situation. I'm 29 now. None of those friends that I still keep in contact with remember seeing red eyes. But everything else was the same as how the Mothman is described. At this time, neither of us had even heard of the Mothman or even that there has been a sighting in the Chicago area. But I, without a doubt, know what I saw was real. Because the group saw the exact same thing at the exact same moment. If I was by myself, I don't know if I would have believed it. Honestly, we were out of there so fast that I couldn't pick up much of the vibes that it gave off. All I know is that it wasn't an owl, a crane, or a drone. It kind of reminded me of the creature from the Jeepers Creepers film, if you know of that movie. 
Not a scary one, but it was definitely pretty awesome to me. I saw fresh deer signs going into this meadow through some aspen when I was out for an early morning hike. I approached the clearing from downwind and made my way toward it, almost imperceptibly slow. The grass in the clearing was ridiculously tall and lush and covered in cool dew, and I could see why the deer would have found this so attractive on a summer morning. I made my way into the grass and got near into the middle when I saw a six-point buck come out from behind some trees on the other side. He looked at me for a minute and knocked his antlers a little bit against a tree. I didn't want to get him riled, so I lowered myself into the grass. When I did that, the whole herd of does quietly stood up all around me. They were bedded in the grass, and I couldn't see them. They didn't seem spooked at all and just lazily started to make their way out of the clearing. A small doe strolled by so close, in fact, that I almost wanted to touch her. Just a really serene and beautiful sight. My cousin and I were on our second elk hunt. It was rifle season in the Oregon Cascades. We had been hunting hard, and we're pretty much exhausted from hiking and trying to locate elk. We decided that we would hit up a small valley that everyone else was avoiding due to terrain and vegetation. Beginning of our backpack hunting, we left camp at 3 a.m. and set out to a point that overlooked a corner of an old burn that had a small river flowing through the bottom. After a couple hours of fighting with rhododendrons, we came out to the burn, and shortly after we got to our destination. About noon, we were deciding that no animals existed in the area, and were about to leave when I just happened to glance over at a patch of blowdown and saw a nice five-by-five five stand-up. I blurted out, Bull. Thankfully, he was far enough away that I didn't spook him. After a while of trying to decide what to do, we got close enough, or so I thought for a reasonable shot. I missed twice. After a few minutes of looking around, he trotted down to a meadow that was significantly deeper into the burn and valley. We decided to get closer and try again. We made it to a little hill that looked over the meadow, but were running out of light and the wind was all wrong. By this point, the bull and his small herd had bedded down just off to the side of the meadow. We were around four to five miles from the camp and had some really gnarly terrain to get through. I figured we probably wouldn't get another chance at the bull if we left and thought the herd might stay and come back out to feed in the morning. We went to the backside of the little hill and made a half-ass shelter with rocks and sticks. I made a small fire and we went to sleep. I woke in the middle of the night to my phone vibrating. It was a message from my wife on my Garmin. She said that she hoped we were able to make it back to the truck because the weather forecast called for three feet of snow in the higher elevations of the Cascades. I was thinking about how crappy the situation had become when I started hearing strange sounds coming from the bottom of the hill, down by the water. It sounded like a mix of laughter and crying with some noises almost sounding metallic. Think rusty gate hinges. I woke my cousin up, and he was just as disturbed by it as I was. We stayed silent and just listened. It was downright creepy and lasted until around 4 a.m. Needless to say, we didn't sleep. We did see the elk again, but didn't take a shot because of the upcoming storm. Never figured out what the noise was either.
My story starts about 25 years ago, 17 years old. I used to take a shortcut through the woods, Freeport, Long Island, New York, and heading towards the shortcut, I'd say maybe about 12 blocks, I had to go through like a marshy swamp area. About a hundred yards in, it's dark. It's in the back of an old railroad station. No lit light. You could barely see. You could barely see 20 or 30 yards. About a hundred yards in there. I had to follow a trail along a fence. I had to sit down to smoke a cigarette. I'm sitting there, 17 years old. I'm not scared of much, especially growing up in New York. All kinds of surprises until after this experience. So out in the marsh, I'm sitting down and out in the marsh, I hear some dog tags, you know, clanking together. I didn't think much of it. There are a lot of dogs out there goofing off. And as I sat there, the chains just started coming closer. The tags were clinking and clanking and started coming closer. So I'm thinking a dog's on its way. No big deal. No need for alarm. As my ears, I couldn't really see. To my left was a creek that came out of a pipe that came from under the property. It wrapped around in front of me to about a 10 or 12 yard drop to the creek. The creek's about 10 yards and a sandbank on the other side. Then there's some type of marshy small trees, and then you could see maybe 10 or 20 yards past the creek. Those clanking sounds are coming, closer and closer. My ears are telling me that it should be visible soon, should be coming into my range. And I still thought it was a dog, so I'm expecting to hear a little critter, you know, coming through the grass and the leaves and whatnot. And I hear two footsteps. I hear something with two footsteps. Thump, thump, and it's coming towards me. Not a French poodle, not a German shepherd. Two distinct footsteps coming through, and you can hear the grass. And the walking and the dog chains are still clinking, clinking. That's about when my alarm bell went off. I'm thinking, okay, this is a problem. There's no way you can think this is anything but a problem. Something's wrong, and my ears are telling me that I ought to be able to see this thing, and it should be right there on the other side of the creek. This Canada just dragged on for about 20 minutes. It did just walk up. I'm thinking serial killer. I'm thinking something. I didn't know. Just bad and I was ready to go because I should have seen it. My ears are telling me it should be there, but I couldn't see it, and I'm looking around trying to figure, should I go back to the right or should I go to the left? And I'm in New York, so it's not always a friendly place, and I'm out in the middle of this swamp and you can't see that good. To get to the back street of the neighborhood I was heading to, I had to make a left about 10 yards, go across the pipe to the right, Go into the 25 yards, then up the side of the hill. It brings me to the dead-end street, straight up there to the neighborhood, and I have about 30 more blocks to my house. And the trail on the other side went away from the creek. So whatever would have been done there on that bank would have had a 30-yard trip to where it was. And I had a 30-yard trip to where it was. So I got up and bolted. I figured I'd beat it. I hang to the left, run to the right. And I'm in full sprint. I'm the athletic type. I'm six foot two. And just where I got to the point where I would go up this hill, a ten or twelve foot shadow with red beady eyes stepped up from the bank and was standing right there. Ten or twelve feet. It had horns. I froze. It had horns. Just an outline. 
It was as dark as dark could be. All you could see is dark. All you see was an outline. Looking into this creature, it was as dark as night. Red beady eyes. Beady, not just glowing eyes. Red beady eyes. And I froze. I was just stuck. And I don't know how long I was there. I stood there contemplating some kind of communication coming at me, like step into me or something. I didn't know, but I didn't want to touch it, so I did what any red-blooded seventeen-year-old would do in this situation. I turned around and I ran. And I ran. And I didn't stop running. I ran all the way home. This was like forty blocks, you know. This was like two miles. I came home sweating, huffing. My parents kind of looked at me odd. I was well raised, you know. Yes, sir. No, sir. No, ma'am, Catholic boy. I was in an almost shock. I couldn't explain to them what happened. I didn't dare. They would have committed me. They would have sent me to private school or something. I told one person in my life. I grew up in Catholic schools, and I tried to tell my priest. Bill asks what he thought the creature was. It was just a definition to figure out that life wasn't what I had figured out at that point. It was something that alienated me from what I considered normal. I was in the United States Air Force, 1962-1970, and volunteered to go to Vietnam in 1965. I got orders to go to Natrang, but when I arrived in Saigon, I was instead sent to Thailand and ended up at Uteran RTAFB, which in the north, close to the border of Laos. It was a small base with just a couple of hundred personnel. We didn't even have any jets, just prop planes. A couple of months after my arrival, the base started really ramping up. They built a whole new barracks area, and more personnel started arriving. I was an electronics tech in the communications service. We had a tiny comm center next to the runway. There were four vans with crypto gear parked next to each other with a Quonset hut for the teletype machine centered on the vans. There was a hooch we used as the shop and a couple of others for the radios and other comm equipment. We had wooden pallets laid out for sidewalks as it got pretty muddy during monsoon season. At the end of one walkway we had a water buffalo a big water tank on wheels that held our drinking water. During night shift, it was the newest guy's job to make coffee for everyone in a big urn. You'd carry the urn out to the water buffalo, fill it, bring it back, and do your thing. So one night, this had to be in early 67, as we were already living in the new barracks, but the new comm center wasn't completed yet. The new guy hauled the urn out to make coffee. After a while, somebody noticed he hadn't returned and went looking for him. He found the urn laying on the ground by the water buffalo, but no sign of the airman. We went on alert. The base was locked down, and a big search started. He was gone. Naturally, we all assumed he had been snatched by the Pathet Lao, Laos version of the Viet Cong. What we couldn't figure out was how they could have penetrated into the center of the base. And why grab an 18-year-old airman third-class teletype operator? Due to the treaty with Thailand, we couldn't carry arms, so it was up to the air police to tighten up security. We were pretty spooked. Probably a good thing we didn't have guns. Ah. 
So three days later, I was in my hooch, and a guy came running in saying they found the missing guy. They found him on the ground right next to the water buffalo. Now the missing guy's hooch was right next to mine, so I went in there. A minute later, he came in, escorted by an AP, and started grabbing his stuff and throwing it in his duffel bag. I asked him what happened, and he said, I have been ordered not to talk about it. So I asked him where he was going, and he said to Japan. The app was very uncomfortable and told me not to talk to him, so I shut up. I looked him over as he packed and could see he was in fine shape. He was clean, and all I could see wrong were three or four scratches on his cheek. He finished up, said bye, and off they went. We never saw him again and never heard anything else about the matter. We all shrugged our shoulders and figured the Pathet Lyle weren't the type that beat up their captives. We couldn't figure how they penetrated the base twice, though. We figured it was just to intimidate us, and things just went back to normal. I was happy when we got moved into the new comm center and away from that spooky spot by the runway. So, years later in the 90s, I was watching a TV show about alien abductions, and they said something about the victims having skin samples scooped out of their cheeks. I suddenly flashed back to that event and remembered the marks on that airman's face. Could it have been? I've been fishing in Alaska for the last six summers with my dad. Never seen anything unexplainable, but have been creeped out a few times. A lot of it comes from lack of sleep, since we are out there for up to 60 hours at a time with no more than four hours between every time we put the net out. Anyway, here's a few things. I was on deck by myself late at night, and a tree wrapped in ball kelp got pulled on. Looked like some kind of giant squid. We've had a 600-pound shark caught in our net. That was scary. Caught two porpoises at once. They had already drowned when we got to them. Not so much creepy as it was startling. Then it was just sad. Found two oil drum-sized pieces of styrofoam about 300 yards away from each other. We figure they were tsunami debris. From the one that hit Japan in 2011, interesting that they would stay so close together for so far. Found an acoustic guitar in its case floating near a beach. The strings had rusted away, but the body was in good shape. Really, the weirdest things are in my own head. I'll have waking dreams where I can't move or something very dangerous is happening. I sometimes wake up completely disoriented and nervous, which makes working hard. I should probably stop fishing. Anyway, today in the car on the way to the store, I was looking at the sky. It was about seven or eight at night, and I saw this strange thing in the sky. It had huge wings like a bat. It was like a dark brown color. There were no feathers at all. The body was black with short or no hair. It had a very slim body and a small tail. The thing about this bat creature was its size. It was bigger than a hawk, and in my town we always see hawks, so I'm used to seeing them. I'm also used to seeing bats. This creature flapped its wings slowly, but the bats here usually flap their wings fast. That's the strange part for me. I could have sworn it was Petrodactyl. No one believes me. I just need to know what the hell I saw. Please help.
To give you some context in 2020, when I got my first job as an order picker in a food processing company. Being a very unsocial person, I managed to negotiate with my boss to work with the small night shift, 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. It's quite ridiculous because there's nothing good about being an order picker when you compare it with other jobs, but for me it was heaven. I could work on my own without having to interact with other people. One evening, my father dropped me off in front of the company at 9 p.m. and left. He couldn't take me any later because he was too tired to drive any later that night. So I sit down on the ground next to the building and start lighting up a cigarette and hanging out on my phone. A few minutes later, a man emerges from the darkness, well-dressed and well-groomed and carrying a rucksack. He walks over to sit on the ground next to me. At the time, he looked like an ordinary employee, so I thought he must have forgotten the file and come back to get it. But the strange thing was that the building was still open, so the man could have gone straight in to get his papers. When I remembered, I was really scared and wondered what this man wanted and why he was sitting so close to me. Being paranoid by nature, I imagined all sorts of creepy things he could do to attack me, but fortunately, he didn't do anything. He just sat there and didn't move an inch, as if he'd become a statue. After several minutes of silence during which I stressed, and he did literally nothing, it was 9.50 p.m., so I entered the building, and the man did the same. I was even more worried, but then I remembered that the building had security cameras, and that reassured me after all. Why would he attack me in the building which is secured by cameras when, outside, there were none? I made my way to the changing rooms to change into my prep outfit and saw that he'd taken a different one that led to the offices. This reassured me a little as it confirmed my theory that he was just an employee. Throughout my evening at work, I thought about this man and couldn't stop wondering why he had waited on the floor with me. One of the most likely scenarios I thought of was that he probably thought the door was closed and that I was waiting to be let in and that by instinct he just sat down and waited with me without saying anything. For most of my shift, I was alone in my area and continued to work, except that at one point I heard a man coughing and turning around. I saw him. The man stood there straight as an eye, staring at me. When I noticed he was staring at me, I jumped up and asked, Can I help you? But the man said nothing and continued to stare at me blankly. After about two minutes, which seemed like hours, he walked towards me. My instincts were screaming at me to run away from this man, but I couldn't. I was stunned, and when he was less than two meters away, he put his hand in his pocket. I thought he was going to pull out a knife or something and stab me, but instead he pulled out a pack of cigarettes, still intact, handed them to me, and walked out. It was the same brand as the one I'd been smoking but it didn't belong to me, for the simple reason that I buy my cigarette packs individually. And once this one is empty, I go and buy another, but I never buy several packs at the same time. What's more, he could never have known what brand it was, since I didn't take my pack out in front of him. After that, I never saw him again. I moved to another area that evening to talk to other colleagues, but they were dubious about my story. I also tried to tell my superiors, but they didn't believe me either because you need an access card to enter the building, and according to them, if, if this stranger was able to get in, he probably had one. The problem was that I was the one who opened the door, and the man simply walked through before it closed. Nevertheless, 
I continued to work there until the end of my contract, but I still don't know who this man is or what he wanted from me. Why did he sit so still next to me that night? Why did he follow me into an employee area? Why did he watch me for so long without saying a word? And why did he give me that unopened pack of cigarettes? My dad spent years at sea and has many stories from his time on tanker ships as an engineer. One time the ship was being slowed down by something they couldn't explain. Mechanically fine. Turns out they had a large dead whale wrapped around the bow of the ship slowing them down. But the creepiest story was a simple one. The crew was shark fishing off the bank of a smaller tanker ship basically attaching meat chunks to hooks and throwing them off the back to trawl in the ocean. Southeast Asia, Australia, Ira. My dad, for fun, made up this large steel alloy, described it as being incredibly durable, hooked to use. They attach a large chunk of meat to it and throw it off the back. A while later, they haul it back in, only to find the meat is gone and the hook is bent completely straight. There was nothing it could have snagged on in the deep ocean as the boat was driving through. My dad and the crew were sufficiently unnerved to think that something large down there could bend a large hook like that. 